All right, good morning. Can I just tell you, one of the toughest decisions I ever had to make as it pertains to life fellowship was moving life prayer from Friday mornings to this space, but I can't tell you how much uh, I am persuaded even more that that was wise and best. It is incredible to see us praying together as a fellowship. It was so worth it to, to see more people crying out to the Lord, agreeing together in prayer, because that is the key to success in ministry and in life. A wise man said many years ago that all failures are prayer failures. And uh, there is something, there's some wisdom to that statement. But we continue in 2 Samuel chapter 11. A man was hunting and he raised his rifle toward a large bear. Before pulling the trigger and a soothing voice, the bear said, isn't it better to talk than to shoot? What is it that you want? Why don't we sit down and negotiate the matter? The man said, okay, well, I want a full fur coat. Very good, said the bear. That sounds negotiable. I only want a full stomach. So let's negotiate a compromise. So they sat down together to negotiate this compromise. And after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been very successful. The bear had a full stomach and the man had a full fur coat. (laughs) They negotiated well. Brothers, I need you to hear me on this. Whenever you negotiate with the devil, you're going to lose big every time. When you come to the table to negotiate with the devil as a man, when the dust clears on that negotiation, you will lose mightily. And when men slide, this is where it always starts. It always starts with compromise. Initially, these compromises appear to be relatively small and inconsequential. But as compromises always go, they always start small and then they become more frequent and they become more larger. This is the testimony of compromise. And before you know it, you find yourself standing on the roof one day engulfed in temptation. All along, all those compromises have been mounting and building and and setting the stage for that moment where you're going to bite it hard. This is exactly what we see in 2 Samuel. In our journey up to chapter 11, where we find ourselves now, I've tried to point these things out along the way, but, but you see it. You see the compromises mounting. They, they may have seemed small, they may have seemed cultural, they may have seemed inconsequential, but they're mounting and setting the stage. The stage was being built for what was going to be a seismic fall, a great one. So we began last week looking at when men slide. This is when men begin to gradually move away from God, gradually move away from His Word, and get closer and closer toward absolute disaster. 
They start sliding. And we identified two proofs of that last week. When men slide, they will have a misplaced confidence. We saw that in the first verse. We see very clearly where David should have been. He should have been on a battlefield with his troops. Instead, he felt very confident that they had it, that they could defeat the children of Ammon. This was a wrap. And then the second thing that we, we talked about was, was a compromised position. Right? Whenever a man is not where he's supposed to be, he's always going to be where he shouldn't be. Right? When he's out of position, he will always find himself in the wrong position. So here's David, instead of being on the battlefield, now finds himself on the roof, staring down the barrel of immense temptation. I mean, this is where we are. So when men begin to slide, if a man is sliding, I promise you, those two things are going to be a reality in his life. He's going to have a misplaced confidence, and that confidence primarily is going to be in himself and what he knows and what he can do. This is why I challenge you men to spend some time in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 just meeting with God over that. That's dang- it is dangerous for you to glory in you. <laughs> to think that you can fill in the blank. Right? You've got to be a John 15, 5 man where you agree with the Lord that without you, I can do nothing. One of the most dangerous places in the life of a man is when he thinks he can. Right? This is big. Okay? But you'll see these two things. When a man is not where he should be in his walk, these two will be present and more. We continue in verse 3 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. So after David eulogized the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he inquired of the Lord about what he should do next. Right? And you get to chapter 5, and, and the, the Philistines attack Israel twice, and what does he do? He inquires of the Lord if he should go to battle against the Philistines in both accounts. Those inquiries reveal the heart of a man who at that moment was a man after God's own heart and during those moments was a man who was trusting in the Lord. He wasn't presumptuous. He could have been presumptuous to think, well, Saul's out of the picture now. Jonathan's out of the picture. The nation has no king. Then I guess, yeah, it's my time. It's my turn. No, he, God, what is it that you have me to inquire? Fantastic. But there has been a spiritual heart transplant because the inquiry that we find in chapter 11 is very different from those inquiries. No, he's not inquiring of the Lord here. He's inquiring 
about the wife who belongs to another man. That's the inquiry here. That's what he's inquiring about. And he received a very clear answer. Unmistakable. The answer. Uh, The woman you're inquiring about has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. And not only that, she is the daughter of Eliam, and she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I want you to pay attention because the way that this is presented to him, it's obvious that he did not need to be introduced to who these people were. He didn't, and we'll see very clearly why. But let me just tell you, the details of what were included in that answer were so clear and so explosive that this should have ended right here. Never mind. (laughs) No need to inquire. This stops right here. Here's why. Look at 2 Samuel 23 and verse verse 34. Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbi, the son of the Mahakathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So this list that we're looking at here, or reading from, we're going to get to it. This is the list of David's mighty men at this point. And so here you go. Uh, This this is Eliam. That's what I'm saying. He did not need to be introduced or informed about who these people were. But there was another very critical detail that was given regarding Eliam. He was the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, and here's why that was so crucial. Look at 2 Samuel 15 and verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Galah, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Now, we'll talk about that later, obviously, but Ahithophel was David's chief advisor. So if Eliam was the father of Bathsheba and the son of David's chief advisor, Ahithophel, what did that make her to Ahithophel? His granddaughter. I mean, David's got some real data here, doesn't he? And that will come into play in a very big way later. But given those details, this might explain why David was able to see or why Bathsheba and Uriah's home was in such close proximity to his palace. They were connected. I mean, she's the granddaughter of his chief advisor. She's the wife of one of his mighty men. That makes sense. And David would have also known Uriah the Hittite because he too was one of David's mighty men. Look at 2 Samuel 23 and verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. As a Hittite, Uriah was of Canaanite origin, which meant he would have converted to Judaism. He was a godly man. His name was probably changed because his name means light of Jehovah. These, listen, (laughs) stay with it now. 
These were men. Eliam and Uriah the Hittite, these were men that David would have gone to battle with. These men were not just putting their lives on the line at this time while David was lusting and coveting after another man's wife, but but David would have had a history with these men. This is why the information that he's given is it's explosive. I mean, these are guys that would have put their lives in one another's hands on the battlefield. Amazing. Which causes me to think how unlikely it would have been for David to not have known who Bathsheba was in advance. Very unlikely. Now, based on that truth that was presented to David, what should have followed, verse 3, was confession and repentance. But here's what we observe about David, and, and that is this, he ignored truth. This is the practice of men who slide. They will ignore truth. David was presented with a mountain of truth. Would you agree with that? A mountain of truth. This is the daughter of one of your mighty men. This is the granddaughter of your chief counselor. This is the wife of one of your mighty men. That's a lot of data. He ignored it. If anything, if anything at this point in his life, that information only encouraged him to move forward. Why? Because he knew where her husband was. He's not at home. He's on the battlefield. The coast is clear. I don't say this to be judgmental, but I'm going to tell you, over the years, I have witnessed a number of men fall. And I mean fall hard. The kind of falls that left them disqualified from the ministry. The kind of fall that wrecked their families and, and some even placed in handcuffs. And in every case, here's what I saw. When saved men slide, rarely is it because of biblical ignorance. That's not why. It's not because they're deficient in truth. That, that, that's not why. No, some of these men were walking Bible commentaries. Some of these men were. The problem was they ignored the truth that they knew and had taught to many. But they ignored it. In Zechariah 7, Zechariah is addressing the issue of dead ritualism and calling Israel to respond properly after the exile now, which is why they ultimately ended up in exile, because they didn't properly respond to truth. Now, I want you to see this here in Zechariah 7, verses 11 and 12, but before we do, I want to make sure you understand, brothers, the immediate audience that he had in view at this point, and it was the fathers or the leaders of the nation. Men. 
This is who he has in view. Zechariah 7, beginning in verse 11. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. When presented with clear, (laughs) explosive truth, David did what all men do when they slide. He refused to listen to truth. He pulled away his shoulder, which was, uh, I guess, a euphemism for what animals would do when they refuse to be yoked. They pull away. He stopped his ears. Not only did he refuse to, to hear truth, but he rejected it. He made his heart as an adamant stone. That is, his heart was as hard as a flint or a diamond. Rock solid. Having seen this in men over the years, listen, this is the point at which you have to step back and let them go. Nothing you can do. Listen, if they are unwilling to hear from the Lord, they're not going to be willing to hear from me (laughs) or to hear from the Lord through me. No, this is where they are. Their heart is an adamant stone. They plug their ears. They're not listening. You are far more broken over their sin than they are. It's not even close. It's eating you alive that they're walking this way. It's tearing you apart that they're away from the Lord and rejecting His Word and they're sleeping like a baby. There's nothing you can do except give them over to the Lord and beg God to be merciful in His chastisement of them. It's coming. Brothers, strong husbands, fathers, and leaders, listen, possess a soft heart toward the Word of God. They do. Brothers, we must be known. We must be known as men who, when the Word of God speaks, we listen. That's how we have to be known. That's how our wives must know us. That's how our children must know us. That's how people in the church must know us. That's how the lost must know us. That when the Word of God speaks, we listen. Having said that, please hear me. Let me give you a death blow to your family. A death blow to your family is when your wife and your children know that you are a man who ignores truth. 
That's a death blow to your family. Let me tell you why. Because if that's your testimony, guess what you've done? You've given your wife and your children a green light to do the same. As a family, we don't have to listen and obey this. I've given you all permission to disregard. I've given you permission to plug your ears, to harden your heart. You do as you wish. And I'm going to tell you, the condition of your family will be so awful before the Lord that it will tempt him to vomit. Not only that, guess what you've also done when this is your testimony? What you've also done is you've made it incredibly difficult for them to follow you. Very difficult. Listen, when David chose to ignore the true or the the clear and explosive truth that was presented to him and everything that followed, guess what he did? And we're going to see this as we keep turning the page. He lost credibility with his children. Why should I listen to you? Why should I follow this? Clearly, you don't. It's going to get really ugly. It is. We'll see it very clearly. Verse 4, And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Now, we need to respect just how straightforward the Bible presents this information. And the focus clearly is on what David did. What did he do? He sent messengers. He took her. He lay with her. That's what he did. What was Bathsheba to do? Her husband is away on the battlefield. The king's men show up. You're coming with us. This this wasn't her next door neighbor. No, the king has requested your presence. This was the Lord's anointed. This was the most powerful man in the kingdom. What was she going to do? The option for her to not come was not an option any more than it would have been for Mephibosheth. When David sent men to bring Mephibosheth to him, he didn't have the option to not come either. The difference is what David was looking to show them. To Mephibosheth, he was looking to show kindness. To Bathsheba, he had something else on his mind. Now, we're not told if she even knew that the king had been watching her bathe. It's possible, but we're not told that. It's not even clear if she even knows why she was being summoned. She was about to find out. 
But the spotlight is on what David did. And the Bible adds what seems to be a trivial, if not insignificant, detail in all of this. For she was purified from her uncleanness. This explains why she was washing herself. When David saw her washing herself, she was purifying herself from her menstrual cycle, which was in obedience to the law, Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 30, if you're interested. That only explains why she was washing herself, but it also explains this. If her husband was away, and she has purified herself from her menstrual cycle. And now, since then, she's had relations with the king. And she's pregnant. There's only one explanation for who the father was. It wasn't her husband, Uriah the Hittite. No doubt about it. So it's not an insignificant, trivial detail. Essentially, first of all, who said the Bible was boring? (laughs) Far from it. But listen, at this point, God has given David a barricade of truth, and what did he do? He plowed through it. He plowed through it. Brothers, the reason that a misplaced confidence, the reason that a compromised position, the reason that the ignoring of truth is so dangerous is because it always leads to crossed lines. This is where it's going. This is where it leads to. Listen, men cross lines with God when they overstep the boundaries of His Word. I know what the Bible says, but... Here's why I am the exception to that. Here's why I can plug my ears. Here's why I can harden my heart. Here's why I can refuse and reject that. Here's why I can cross that line. Even though I know exactly what God says. You don't understand my situation. You don't understand how hard my marriage has been. You don't understand what what my wife is like. You don't know how demonic she can be and how unreasonable and impossible she can be. And this woman, is she was just kind to me. She listens to me. She is supportive and she's patient and she even prays for me. So here's why it's okay for me to cross the line and have her. You don't understand, Kenny. That's how it works. But he crossed lines, did he not? Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not kill. He hasn't done that yet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Cross that line. Thou shalt not steal. What did his messengers do? They took her. 
Exodus 20 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And there are men who would make the argument that David broke all Ten Commandments. I'll let you work that out if you agree with that. For sure, we know he broke these. Now, the Bible says that this woman, Bathsheba, was very beautiful to look upon. So although at this point, I mean, would you agree that if there was one thing that David wasn't hurting on or lacking was women? You know, he, he was doing okay in that area. Uh, by this point, he had multiplied, contrary to Deuteronomy 17, he had multiplied wives and concubines. So it wasn't like he was missing something. Far from it. No, what happened was he was apparently this, this image of this woman, Bathsheba, it, apparently all the women that he had, she, uh, none of them held a candle to her. She lit him up. He became so intoxicated and infatuated with her presence that he said, I, I, I don't care whose daughter she is. I don't care whose granddaughter she is. I don't care who, whose wife she is. I've got to have her. There's no way that something that beautiful, that, that me as the king, that how dare me deprive myself of such pleasure? Wow. The truth is, this is where every man can and will find himself if he's not a disciple indeed. He will shatter his marriage vows with great boldness. He will cross the line. He'll start with justifying pornography. You know, it's just how it is. You know, it's just, I can't help it. I've tried everything. No, you haven't. And then that won't be enough. And then he'll start flirting. And then that won't be enough. It's been years ago now, I remember sitting with a man who had, I can say this, it's been years ago. <laughs> he hadn't just shattered his, 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 his marriage vows, he had spit on them. I'm sitting there with this man, his broken-hearted wife, and I asked him, how many times have you committed adultery? I can't tell you. You know, one of the things in counseling that you're not supposed to do is get emotionally involved. I said, I am appalled. I am appalled that you have the audacity to sit here with me and your wife, this woman who is willing 
to forgive you and reconcile, and you are so nonchalant about this. You can't even tell me how many times you've been unfaithful to her. And she's sitting here, brokenhearted, weeping, distraught, devastated over what you've done, and you don't even care. This was a man who had a misplaced confidence. He had a compromised position. He was a man who plugged his ears to truth. This was him. And my goodness, was he crossing lines. Would you hear this excerpt from the book Temptation by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? This is good for us to think on. This is for everybody, but especially men. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret, smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of a man in deepest darkness. Amen. That was David on the roof that moment. God who? (laughs) Word of God what? (laughs) Wife, granddaughter, daughter of who? (laughs) None of that means anything to me right now. (laughs) Brothers, I beg you, the most dangerous hour in the life of a man is when he is fearless and crossing the lines of God's word. This is one of the most dangerous hours when a man can look right into the face of the word of God and say, what you going to do? <laughs> Oh, listen, in that moment of great temptation on the roof, hear me very carefully, brothers, David did not possess an ounce of the fear of God. Not an ounce. There's no way that you send men, take another man's wife, knowing everything that he knew, if you had an ounce of the fear of God. While he might have ignored God and his word, God was about to get his attention. 
regarding the choices that he made. Brothers, let me just say this. It's important for us to bring some balance to this point I'm about to make. In our circle, we make a very big deal about free will. And we should. I understand why we do that. And I agree with that position. But here's what I need you to understand to balance this out. We have free will, and so does God. So after you choose, God gets to choose. So here we go, verse 5. <laughs> and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. So the God that uh, David has erased, uh, the word that he had plugged his ears to, So, uh, David, you, you did some sending. You, you, you sent for her, and so now she's sending you something. So you've you, you done some sowing, son. What I'm letting you know now is the reaping is coming. So you made your choice. You made your choices. Now I'm going to start making mine. Because I get to do that too. Not to insult you brothers, but if there's one thing, I've taught my children a number of things, but I do think they can finish this one. Choices are real, and so are consequences. That's what we're going to see next. Lord, I do believe that uh, our time this morning, <laughs> I do believe that we've heard from you. God, hopefully we've seen the absolute danger that comes with ignoring truth and crossing lines. Anytime we ignore truth, it always leads to the crossing of lines. And so, God, I am praying for my brothers. I'm praying for me that, God, the business that you have for us in this section of Second Samuel, that, Lord, we would not be guilty of what we read about here in Zechariah 7, 11, and 12 about the leaders of the nation who rejected your word, God. God, help us to have soft hearts, help everything that needs to land, help it to land in our hearts and in our minds so that, God, we can be the kind of husbands, fathers, men that we need to be. That would glorify you. It would edify our homes and it would edify this church. In Jesus' name, amen.